Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern coast of Victor's European Forces. Bonjour, I'm French author Clément Horvat and welcome to a new episode of Till Victory, a podcast about World War II and peace. It's been a while since the last episode when I interviewed World War II veteran Tom Rice of the 101st Airborne Division and I don't know when the next episode is going to be released. I think I'll just do some from time to time. So make sure to subscribe to the channel on your favorite streaming platform so that you don't miss them. Today, we'll talk about Leo H. Brown, an American soldier from F Company, 359th Infantry Regiment, 19th Infantry Division. He is one of the 50-plus soldiers honored in my book about wartime letters, Till Victory, the Second World War by those who were there, which, by the way, is finally out in English worldwide. So, in the first half of this episode, I'll read his full story, part of which has been featured in the Military Times, the famous independent news site for US service members, with a few extra bits that are not even in the book. Then on the second half of the podcast, to which you can jump to right away if you've already read the book, I'll have a chat with Leota and Randall, Leo's daughter and son-in-law. We'll talk about his life, his service, and the amazing trip they did on Leo's footsteps in Europe. Without further ado, and I'm sorry if I read his letters with my French accent rather than with the right southwestern accent, here's Leo's story. Born in Oklahoma in 1918, Leo H. Brown was a farmer in New Mexico when he joined the U.S. Army on April 1, 1942 in Fort Bliss, Texas. He was naturally assigned to the 19th Infantry Division, Texas and Oklahoma, whose two initials on his shoulder patch will give its men the nickname Tough Hombres, the use of Spanish resulting from the state's proximity to Mexico. After a long training period in Texas, Louisiana and California, Leo left for Europe from Fort Dix, New Jersey. He was to land on Utah Beach on June 7, 1944, on D-plus-1, with the reinforcements, but his ship, the Susan B. Anthony, hit a mine offshore that morning and sank in two hours, fortunately without causing any casualties. Leo was picked up by a British ship and tasted English tea for the first time in his life. When he finally lands on Utah Beach, he's mixed with men from other units and has no equipment as everything was lost in sinking. To Leo's dismay, the soldiers are given weapons looted from the Germans, despite a sniper threatening the GIs in the orchard nearby. He takes the risk of venturing alone in the fields where crashed American gliders lie. An injured American paratrooper gives him his weapon and ammunition, and Leo will find an M1 helmet, various equipment and precious rations in one of the gliders frame. When Leo returns to his company, he's at last ready to go to war. The division's mission, attached to the 1st US Army, is to cut across the Merdere River in the westward march through the Cotentin Peninsula, while other units move up to Cherbourg. The Americans discover a terrain as inhospitable as it was unexpected. The Norman Bocage consists of an infinite succession of parcels of land, ranging from a few hundred square yards to several hectares. These are surrounded by centuries-old hedges that are so high, thick and deep-rooted that the US Army will have to develop new additions for its tanks to help create breaches and facilitate the advance of infantrymen. The bocage also includes three-foot-high banks which are just as thick and topped by dense vegetation at least 10 feet high. The Germans had dug in and organized solid defenses where snipers, camouflaged panzers, ambush squads and 88mm guns provide covering fire for each other. The simple act of progressing through the natural defenses of the Bocage is already a real challenge for the Americans, but to top it all off, 
it has to be done under heavy rain, making the swampy terrain and visibility even worse. The enemy has set up many traps, sometimes in the shape of a simple wire stretched between two bushes, decapitating jeep drivers as they pass by. The shell holes in front of the machine gun's positions are full of mines, unseen by the terrified GIs who are looking for some cover. The Germans have also prepared small openings in the base of the hedges in order to shoot while taking advantage of the invisibility and protection offered by the terrain. Sometimes, one of them would come out with his hand in the air, pretending to surrender before throwing himself to the ground at the last moment to let the camouflage MG42s mow down the GIs who came out of their holes to take a prisoner. American morale falls to a very low point. Nerves give way, and evacuations for battle fatigue become more and more numerous. 30,000 psychological losses for the first U.S. Army alone. On a good day, the U.S. Army manages to capture one hedge while losing a man for every yard of land conquered. Leo soon watches his first friends fall, and by June 9, his company already has 42 men left, even though they've only been in France for two days. He writes on the 26th. Here I am in a foxhole in France. I can tell you what day I landed, but I can tell you there weren't very many who landed ahead of us. We have spent nearly all our time on the front lines. I lost my gunner the first day in combat. A sniper got him. I think he will live okay. He is a really swell boy, but that is the way with war. Queen Buffington, whom Leo lived with every day and night for two years, was shot in the stomach while trying to bring ammunition to G Company. Leo brought him to the 8th station just in time and he'll survive the war. However, he'd spend the next two years in hospital and never really recover. At the 8th station, Leo sees rows of dead American soldiers lying on their backs, perfectly aligned. The sight is particularly difficult for him as it become very close to many of them during his two years of training. At the beginning of July, as the Cotentin Peninsula is partially liberated after the fall of Cherbourg, the Allies head south. They are seeking to clear access to Perrier and Coutances, but will still have to cross miles of impenetrable and firmly defended hedgerows before reaching these cities. An elite regiment of the 5th Fallschirmjäger Division, a German airborne division, was deployed to block their route, taking up positions on the Malman Line, which extends from the west coast, south of La Haye du Puy, to the marshy area in the center of the peninsula, in Beaucoudray. Dominating the line, Hill 122 must be taken by the Allies, whatever the cost. With a panoramic view of the whole Cotentin region, and occupied by an enemy determined to fight to death, its artillery guns cover all angles. At its foot, the forest of Montcastre is the 19th division's objective. The tough Ambres are in charge of the line's eastern sector, starting from the village of Préteau, while the 79th division is to take La Haye du Puy in the west, with the paratroopers of the 82nd airborne in between. The latter have already lost half their headcount since D-Day, but will soon be relieved by the newly arrived 8th infantry division. The attack is launched at 5.30 a.m. on July 3. Leo's regiment takes the division's right flank and his battalion advances through a constant barrage of artillery. At noon, German resistance becomes fierce as the battalion crosses a road south of Preto. The enemy shoots at wounded Americans from the trees while the artillery fires at will from the heights of Montcastre. Lying in the field, Leo can hear machine gun bullets mowing the wheat spikes above his head. On its first day, the division has progressed less than a mile on average, and Leo has only reached the edge of Saint-Suzanne. But the Germans pull back a few hundred yards and the village is secured by 9pm. Despite their heavy losses, the GIs have taken dozens of prisoners, including Russians and Poles, whom the Germans had left behind to buy themselves some time. That day, Leo meets his future commander. He'll write in his memoirs. 
there was a German tank that kept shooting in the big ridge of dirt that we had driven the Germans out of. I don't know why it was shooting. The ridge was 15 feet thick. Anyway, we got two new second lieutenants. I liked the looks of one of them. They were just standing around as they hadn't been assigned. One of them just walked out behind the ridge of dirt and the tank shot him with the big gun. After that, we only had one new second lieutenant. His name was Lesser. Not long after that, on the 26th of July, the company commander was killed. Lieutenant Lesser took over the company and was made a captain and was our commander for the rest of the war. He was a good officer. Among the casualties of the day, Leo's friend Adel Sullivan was shot in the wrist. Leo will never see him again, as Odell will be killed in a car accident on his return to the United States. For the moment, Leo doesn't know that he too will be injured a few hours later. The offensive resumes at 6 a.m. on the next day, July 4th. From San Suzanne, towards the eastern edge of the Montcast Forest. The GIs managed to reach the road leading to La Dupuis, but incessant German counterattacks and accurate artillery fire make the advance slow and costly. The battalion is forced to withdraw on its former positions at Saint-Suzanne, where it will push back several assaults until late in the afternoon. Leo is given the task of bringing a mortar to the front of the lines to destroy a machine gun nest. Even though the enemy is only a hundred yards from the GIs, while the minimum range is four times that distance. Be that as it may, Leo runs back to his platoon, only to find out that they'd already used all the ammunition, despite the fact that they hadn't received any firing instructions. The commander therefore orders Leo to take a few men with him and go in search of anything the Americans could throw at the Germans. With five of his comrades, Leo finds a 12-foot-deep depression, at the bottom of which is an American tank facing the German lines. Next to it, a jeep had just dropped all kinds of ammunition. As Leo approaches the pile, the tank receives the order to move, which always tends to attract the attention of the enemy's artillery. Thus, as the men hurry to fill their bags with ammunition, they are shaken by a sudden and deafening explosion above their heads as the German guns fire as expected. One of the soldiers is killed on the spot by a piece of shrapnel to the head. Two are seriously wounded and two slightly injured, including Leo. He receives a fragment the size of a thumb below his right knee, but doesn't really suffer even though the piece of shrapnel is white hot, which at least has the merit of stopping the bleeding. Leo manages to walk half a mile to the aid station, where he's taken care of by a medical officer, offering him a dose of morphine. As Leo says, If it's all the same to you, I'm not hurting that much and I don't think I need morphine. The captain replies, I have a policy. I give everyone a shot because a lot of people are in shock and don't know they are hurting. Shortly after, Leo is evacuated by jeep in a field hospital. There, he writes to his family without mentioning his wound. As far as I know, things are going along fairly well, but pretty slow. The Germans brought a lot of reinforcements to slow down this big drive. They have more artillery than they ever had back toward Cherbourg. About 9 out of 10 of our casualties are from artillery. On the average, they can't shoot a rifle or a machine gun very well. I think most of them are afraid to stick his head up to see where he's shooting. Soon, Leo is sent back to England. He writes on July 19 from his hospital bed. I am back in England now, in the GI hospital. I got a small piece of German 88 shell in my right leg. The place where it went in has healed up. They say it won't bother me to leave it in. But I sure want it taken out. I can walk okay, but I have to walk on the ball of my right foot. It, it seems that muscles are too short to set my heel down. It doesn't hurt at all now. It was just about okay before I came back to England. 
It sure does seem quiet over here, compared with France. There is a PX, where we can get our rations. Three bars of candy, three packages of cookies, and a pack of gun, plus two cokes, per week. I never have money to get a coke. I have had one pop since I have been gone from the States. It was a doctor paper, just before I went to France, in an American Red Cross. I spent 28 days on the front line, and that is a long time. The good lord was with me, and I was... This part was censored. There were three of us there, and I was in the middle one, and I got off the lightest. And that is too much to be just cold luck. I came back to England in a transport plane. It was a real nice ride, and just a matter of minutes by air. I rode on an American ship, a British ship, and a landing barge going over there. They really took good care of the wounded. The doctors and nurses are okay, and my hat is off to those first eight boys on the front lines. They are on the ball. The medics will have a lot of work to do in the coming days. The tough armbrace wouldn't reach Montcastre until the evening of July 5, and four more days would be needed to dislodge German paratroopers clinging to its heights. Counterattacks will multiply, and all available men, from engineers to cooks, would be sent into battle to support the American infantry. They only arrive in the village of Plessis-Lastel, only three miles from their starting point, on July 12, at the cost of 5,000 losses. The killed, wounded and missing of the 19th Infantry Division alone would represent more than a quarter of all Allied casualties suffered during the same week in all theaters of operations in the world combined. The tough armories will continue their advance without respite towards Coutances. An assault on the island of Saint-Germain-sur-Sèvres, so-called because of the many rivers surrounding the village, would fail on July 23, forcing the division to bypass it and take Perrier four days later. July 26 will be a tragic day for Leo's former company, which will lose more than a hundred men out of 186 in total. Yet, it will manage to break out of Normandy to cross the Mayenne and Sart rivers before turning northward to help close the Falaise Pocket, the last battle of the campaign. After recovering from his injuries, Leo will return to his unit in November while the division is on the Saar River and will participate in the Moselle crossing, fighting for an additional 161 days. The engagement in January 1945 will cost him many friends, as well as part of his hearing ability, when a shell once again exploded nearby, piercing his eardrum. He'll see the end of the war in Czechoslovakia, then return to New Mexico at the end of October 1945, to resume his peaceful farming activities, Leo passed away on August 30, 2006. Now, let's have a chat with Leota, his daughter, and Rendall, his son-in-law. Hi! Hello! Hello! <laughs> nice to see you. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. It's, uh, it's great to finally uh, talk to you in person. Well, in person. It's our pleasure. Yes. It's as close as we're going to get in the era of COVID, right? What did you think of the first half of the podcast? You you, you listened to it, right? It was... I thought it was so interesting. You did a great job. Yes. Very, very, very well done. Thank you. And and I wanted to know what, what, what kind of man he was. My father was extremely honest. He would never, ever tell an untruth. If he said he would do something... He would do it. You could count on him. He was a man of honor. He had a really funny sense of humor. Anytime he would tell a joke, he would um, get up close to the punchline and would start laughing and give himself away. Um, he was extremely kind. He loved children. Mm -hmm. He was a wonderful provider, a wonderful father. Mm -hmm. He was the sort of person you could count on him. If he was always handy to help. If anybody was ever in the hospital, he would go and visit and sit with people, help take care of them after they got home. 
He and my mother always would help unfortunate people in our community. If anyone needed financial help, food, whatever kind of assistance, they, would, they were always there to help. What do you remember about my dad? Mm-hmm. So I, I'd like to tell the story when I first met him. Yeah. Leota took me home to the farm and um, <laughs> to meet her mother and father. And so I met her mom, who was, she's very kind and nice. And then I'd heard about her dad a little bit. And so he um, came in, he pulled up in his pickup truck and had on a cowboy hat and a vest and cowboy boots. <laughs> He walked up to me and looked me and gave me a good firm handshake and then said maybe a couple of words, not much. He wasn't one to just talk random chit chat. He just got to the point. Then yeah. he left and I thought, well, he's contemplating my murder because <laughs> I was only 20 years old. <laughs> and I thought, oh no. And he didn't say a lot. Um, to me that first time. And so I was a little intimidated. This is his only daughter. So only child, only child. And so maybe uh, he wasn't going to tell me what was on his behind his cards. But uh, anyway, as time went on, I found out he had a very nice and gentle side to him, but uh, he was nobody to be, to be messed with either. I remember one time, not too long after we married, we were at my mom and dad's house having lunch and my dad at that time had very good 2020 vision. And across the road from our house was a large pasture that had cattle. And he saw a cow that w- had wandered off by itself and mm-hmm. some coyotes were circling it and harassing it, trying to h- kill the cow. My dad jumped up, ran to his office, grabbed his rifle, ran out to the front porch and started shooting towards the uh, coyotes and was plinking bullets right at their feet. He didn't kill them, but he chased the coyotes off. And I mean, this was a good distance away. It's not like most people would have noticed. Mm-hmm. So he, he was quite the sharpshooter. As yeah. Well. And I was sitting there like my mouth open and thinking you, you'd never grown up around anything, never like grew that. up around a farm or anything like that. And here's her <laughs> father standing out on the porch with a gun firing and I'm just sitting there eating. I was halfway between my meal and between eating the next bite. And there he is out on the porch and I'm just like, okay, <laughs> this is interesting. But uh, so my dad was 40 years old when I was born and we had our first child when I was 20 Mm-hmm. And they kept Nathan a lot. And they were out walking probably a quarter of a mile from the house and it started raining. Nathan was four or five years old. He was a good sized little boy. And my father was probably, what, nearly 70 years old at the time? Yeah. Threw my son over his shoulder, nearly 70 years old, and ran to the house a quarter of a mile. I mean, he was rough. He was tough. He was strong. He was. Yeah. Tough as nails. Tough as nails. Yeah. And apparently he had a huge impact on your lives. Uh, you, you told me your daughter, Becca, even named her son, Leo. Yeah. Our daughter is married to a Sri Lankan man and they live in Sydney, Australia. So here's this cute little baby. He's 15 months old now. He's half American, half Sri Lankan, mm-hmm. and his name is Leo. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cute. And then Le- uh, Becca keeps a pair of Leo's cowboy boots on her uh, table oh, by her right. television. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you're to remind her. And then he, uh, she used to play cards with him a lot. And so um, his family a lot of times would uh, play cards and then visit. So they, they would either play dominoes or have a good game of cards going. So when he was in the army, you know, obviously most soldiers played poker and I gather he was pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, he taught our daughter how to play poker when she was <laughs> young and she went over to her friend's house and was playing army poker, like the, you know, betting and so forth. And she got in trouble <laughs> with the parents of her friend because they didn't want to have a bad influence, but she and her, uh, she and Leo uh, would play cards endlessly. Yeah. And he would, he wouldn't let her win. <laughs> yeah. Were they interested in uh, his military service or? Probably not so much. No. 
No. Um, unfortunately, I did not get interested in World War II history until probably 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. I really regret that I didn't take advantage of that opportunity to talk to him. Yeah. I would listen to him talk about it, and I just roll my eyes and quit listening. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, Randall listened yeah. to a lot of the stories. So um, Leo's hearing was impaired. Um, so he sometimes when he was in a big crowd, didn't like, um, you know, because it's hard for him to he- difficult to hear. So he would because of the shell that exploded. Yes. Yeah. Because of that. Yes. And uh, also probably being a farmer listening, you know, having the noise, but the shell Mm. And so um, he said he could hear a man's voice better. I don't know if that's a typical male thing to say, but uh, we would go back and sit in his office where it's quiet. And usually within two to three, four or five minutes, we were back in World War II. And so for 28 years, I listened to his stories and he would often Um, I think it's kind of a tradition in their family, his family, where they were good storytellers. Mm-hmm. And he sit down with a cup of coffee and we, you know, he would use a lot of descriptive language. And um, and next thing you know, we were in World War II. And so I heard a lot of these stories. I wish I had the reference that I do now to go back and ask him questions. But uh, I could ask him some very much more well-informed questions now than I could have at the time. Yeah. yeah. But, Clement, I will tell you that my dad, when I was growing up, a lot of my children's, my friends' fathers had served in World War II. Mm. And in America at that time, there were two different ways that men would deal with it. A lot of the men would come home, and they refused to talk about it. They just, that's in the past. I don't want to talk about it. Terrible memories. And then there were some men like my dad that they seemed almost obsessed, like they could never really move on. Mm. And I think it would be very fair and honest to say that my dad had a great deal of post-traumatic stress disorder because of it. Yeah. I can tell you many, many times I would be awakened at night as a child, hearing him cry out and scream in his sleep. Mm. I mean, Yeah. It, it profoundly, permanently affected his life. Mm-hmm. And I would say not positively in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think he, you know, nowadays when people come home from the war here in the United States, the Veterans Association will offer psychological counseling if they need that. Back in the 40s, that was not done. They didn't understand post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. disorder mm. it was still taboo. And i think my dad really could have benefited having a professional counselor to mm-hmm. talk to to help work through the psychological trauma that he endured during the war yeah i mean i can't even imagine the horrific sights that yeah. that he that those men endured yeah he was very haunted about this young man My my dad was a sergeant, and he felt like if he could get the young, the new ones that came in to survive two weeks three of days, battle. Three days. Okay, well, he told me about, two weeks. Yeah. But anyway, that he felt like that they stood a better chance of surviving, that many, many of these young men would be killed in the first day or two of battle. Mm. And he said there was this young man that um, – Dad apparently had really taken him under his wing to try to help him to toughen up and to survive. And this young man really, I guess, really clung to my dad and depended on him. And literally on the first or second day of battle, this young man was killed. And dad never knew why. He said there was not a mark on his body, but his shoes were missing. And he suspected that uh, a German had deliberately killed him to steal his shoes. Mm-hmm. And it really traumatized my, my dad. Yeah. yeah. And then you saw, and he, he wrote down his story. One of uh, Leota's cousins to say, uh, encouraged him to write down the story. He said, you know, you've been talking a lot about this. And true to form with Leo, whenever he started a project, come hell or high water, he would finish it. 
and he sat down writing uh, the story. And so he went through and, and, and in the, the story, he said, well, I'm coming to the part I dread the most. And I guess he actually, for the first time, uh, told a few of the stories about some of the young men that died. But in the book, you or the his writings, you know, I think you he wrote by hand. Uh, I would love for you to just actually ha- handle that because it's in his in pencil. Um, but he talked about um, some of these different stories and how they haunted him. But he turned down a battlefield commission to become an officer, a second lieutenant, because he one figured he would possibly end up over in Japan and not have enough points anyway, but he also didn't want to leave these guys. And he figured he wasn't in it for the career and he would be home in half a year anyway. So what's the difference? Mm. So the prestige of becoming an officer meant little to him at the time. So he stayed with the guys uh, because I guess they grew to love him. I do remember one story that he told me. Um, I probably was in my 30s by this point. He probably, when I was younger, wanted to protect his baby girl. Mm -hmm. But I remember him telling me how horrified he was. And I don't know if this was after the Battle of the Bulge. I don't recall. But seeing American soldiers that had been mutilated by the German soldiers. And horrible things like cutting off their genitals and sticking them in their mouth and this kind of thing. And he was horrified and really angered by the way he saw these people's corpses dishonored. Yeah. I don't know if likewise things had happened, Americans inflicting that kind of thing on Germans. I think it's possible. It's probable that, Anyway, I do remember that story, and, and he was absolutely horrified seeing, seeing this happen. Yeah, and he, would, and he was vivid in his descriptions. Uh, he Certain stories stuck, and he would just, you can just picture them in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, one was at the end of the war, he um, saw this blacksmith who was sitting on his anvil or uh, sitting out on a stump by his blacksmith shop. And he had uh, the uh, traditional German pipe and he would take uh, wood shavings and um, crumble them up and put them in and then light them up. And then he would sit back and have a smoke. And so Leo saw this and he smoked, but I don't think a lot at the time he might've, but he found some, uh, a can of pipe tobacco and, I think he traded, he didn't drink alcohol. So I think he traded some, his uh, shares for alcohol and he got a big can of pipe tobacco and took it back to the blacksmith and handed it to him. And he said, the man looked like he handed him a, a box of gold and he took out the, took the lid off and smelled the, uh, the tobacco, closed his eyes like he was in heaven and then took some of the pipe tobacco, put it in there and then lit the pipe and sat back took a first draw of a real tobacco since the war, you know, cause they had not had any provisions. Yeah. And he said, I have never seen a human being in my entire life more contented than that man. He closed his eyes and was enjoying his first smoke in like multiple years. And, but he would tell that story with such vivid uh, vividness. I know dad had a lot of compassion for the German people that were victimized by this war and he really felt sorry for their young men, mm. young men that were mm-hmm. forced into fighting mm. just young boys young teenagers you know and just being slaughtered and yeah, yeah because that that blacksmith was a german right yes yeah uh, he was yeah. a german yeah uh, yeah so he he uh he just he couldn't bear not to f- find some tobacco for him because mm. The guy, uh, you know, was still smoking wood shavings just because remembering the old times yeah. uh, back when he actually had tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. yeah by the way, I, I only covered uh, his time in Normandy until victory, but uh, he, he fought, uh, you know, the, for the rest of the war. Can you can you tell us a bit more about what he did when he went back to his unit? Um. So he entered it back in at the Moselle Crossing, which is, I guess, as you probably follow, is a pretty famous mm-hmm. Um, the entrance back into Germany. And um, then they, um, that was pretty harrowing because it was in flood stage. And then 
the 90th Infantry broke the Siegfried line. So they were the first ones through the Siegfried. And he was there um, for the first occupation of the Siegfried. And they went across, uh, remember the story about how they got across the Siegfried line? Vaguely, yeah. So the, the young men couldn't get over the fence. So they went back to the town. Um, hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers took as much garbage and junk they could and piled it over the fence and over the dragon's teeth and just went over it. And then they, uh, their officer, they had one tank and they drove it back and forth and revved up the engine real loudly. So the Germans thought there was a lot more going on. And they, they were shocked to know that they had one tank. And, uh, and then they got call, called back across. You probably know more about that through the Saar mm-hmm. um, River. And he said, if there was ever hell on earth, that was it. Uh, I guess they took untold amount of artillery um and then they ended up back in luxembourg for the battle of the bulge uh the ardennes offensive and he was in luxembourg probably six weeks uh through the whole siege there although they didn't his particular unit didn't make it all the way to bastion but um pretty close Mm -hmm. and um i'll tell you one one particular story that or maybe you can wait until we told when we walked in his footsteps, but uh, he was in what they called the night attack. They were, I guess, the hot spot of the Ardennes offensive is a place right in the middle of Luxembourg called the Schumann's Eck. And it's just uh, this big valley. And by that point, Patton had taken all the splinters, uh, d- different divisions and put under the third army. And Patton um, had, um, told the, or one of the officers from the 90s says that, yes, we're going to be at this objective in the morning. And he told Patton that, and Pat said, great, thank you very much. You need to be there. He went back and told General Terrell, uh, we'll be at this objective. And he says, we're not at, at that, we're not at that objective. Why did you tell him that? And he said, well, I thought we were. So, um, they said, well, we have to be there in the morning. And so they marched the soldiers at night in the snow. And they ended up walking right between 10,000 German soldiers uh, on their way from Notham to Schumann's Eck, um, which is a big valley with a big road, I think the Highway 16. And um, they had no idea that they had walked past the Germans and apparently the Germans had no idea that they, nobody could feel it was such a shock. They didn't know how to react, but anyway, they walked right past these Germans um, and they made their objective in the morning. But anyway, that's just the kind of stuff. It was in bitter cold, as you know, the, and during the, the bulge. And then after the bulge, they mostly were in cleanup operations, uh, making their way all the way through Germany and then on to the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Hmm. And then uh, the big one that he was real proud of, too, is the, the 11th Panzer Division surrendered to the 90th Infantry Division. So he was part of the surrender as a, a, an elite panzer unit. Hmm. And so that was the big final surrender. They wanted to <laughs> surrender to somebody worthy and the 90th they considered worthy foes. So anyway. And, and how many of those places have you visited? Uh, when you, when was that that you uh, went to Europe to uh, follow his footsteps? Well, we haven't followed all of his footsteps, but um, we went first in 2006. Mm-hmm. And that's when we met uh, the, the husband and wife drove us around in a Jeep from the 90th Infantry Division into some of the battlefields. And then we went back in 2015 in the winter. Mm-hmm. And then we had two different people that were willing to take us around and show us different yeah. sites. Mm-hmm. So Frank is uh, a historian at uh, the museum in Dekirch, and we stopped in various places. Well, he wanted us to have dinner at a restaurant. So we went and had dinner. He's the historian in So we had dinner and we enjoyed company. And he says, now I want to tell you about this. So he pulled out some photographs of the restaurant and it was a rubble. I told you about the night attack. That's where the Germans command post was. The restaurant where we were eating was his objective from that night attack. When they arrived in the morning, they arrived at Schumann's Eck Rest Cafe. 
Yeah. And then he would pull out photographs. We would stop and then um, he would we'd pull over to the side of the road and he'd say uh, step out. So we'd step out and he'd hold a photograph of uh, the German columns of German troops. And he would say, um, this is where you're standing. And then so Leota would stand next to him and then he would tell the story. And then we did we just did this off and on through most of the morning and afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see this quiet, beautiful rolling hills, and then. But they still have the foxholes. Yeah, you can still see that. You can see trees that have shrapnel scars on them. This many years later. Mm-hmm. What did you feel when you visited these places? Did you uh, relate to him a bit more? Um, understand his experiences a bit more? Absolutely. Um, Like I'd mentioned earlier, probably 25 years ago or so, I became very interested in World War II. The European theater had read through a lot of the literature about the battles and the savagery of, of war. And absolutely, I it felt like a haunted place to me. Mm-hmm. I could just picture what it must have been like in January of 45. Mm-hmm. And it was the worst, most bitter winter mm-hmm. that they'd had in decades, I guess. Mm-hmm. And horribly bitter. Mm -hmm. And those men were not outfitted very well. They did not have the kind of winter gear that we enjoy now. And, um, yeah, you talked about the guns when you would pull back the bolt, the snow would get in there and you push it back in and then it would form an ice ball. Then you had to pull it back out with your bare fingers and dig the ice out and then put it back in again. You know, just, you know, just how. I think it's remarkable. Any, Any of them survived, not only from the war, but from the weather, the lack of supplies. I think they were hungry a great deal of the time. Um, Dad had started that battle at 170 pounds. Is yeah, that what you told me? Many, yeah, just in Normandy alone. Oh, in Normandy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by the time he ended up in the hospital, he weighed 130 pounds. Yeah. 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 One time uh, he told a story that. I guess he. it was a smaller group of them. I don't know if they were on a scout patrol, but they found, a, I think it was just he and another soldier, and they, they, they stayed the night in a barn, and they found 60 eggs, and the two, two soldiers ate 30 eggs each. <laughs> <laughs> that's how hungry they were. Yeah, that's not. <laughs> they were young men. <laughs> but... Uh, Yeah. And then one time he found some, they were very, I think a lot of them were really resourceful, uh, easy to adapt to their situation. So they weren't always following command. I mean, they were following commands, but they were given a, a lot of leeway to think for themselves, you know, common sense. Have you told him the story no. about the gold ring? No. Several years ago, we were contacted by Romaine in Luxembourg and mm-hmm. they had found a, a gold ring with my dad's initials on it. Okay. And um, they had their historians, World War II historians, and they connected it to my dad's company. And they found us on the internet and asked if perhaps this ring might have been belonged to my father. Okay. How do you remember Romaine so, finding us? Romaine and Norbert are like a lot of people in Luxembourg. They grew up with World War II on their mm-hmm. back backyard, and uh, they collect. They go out and on weekends and look for artifacts and things in the forest. And they found this ring um, somewhere nearby their home in Berlay. And um, so they located it that way. And then they contacted somebody in the uh, who had the, the positions of who were fighting in that particular zone. And mm-hmm. it was the 90th Infantry Division, Company F. So... It, on the back of the ring, it's inscribed L period B, 1944, like a, somebody took a knife and carved it into the back of the ring. And there were three possibilities with um, a soldier with the name was starting with L and the last name B. Mm-hmm. And so one of them would have been Leo Brown. And so they contacted us through um, we were going to take a trip over there anyway. And uh, because I'm of Luxembourgish descent. So um, they said, well, why don't we meet? (laughs) So so you can tell them the rest about the ring. 
Well, I looked at the ring and I looked at the way it was carved and I think it's possible it could have belonged to my father. It looked like his handwriting as much as it could being carved on the back of a gold ring. Um, I think it's possible that it might have belonged to him. It was just randomly found in the field. Yeah, yeah. At so, a battle site, so. The first time we went to Luxembourg, the we went someplace where they were entering into a battle and the... I think it was Romaine uh, said Leota. This they showed a picture of of the uh, the unit, like the 90th Infantry, getting ready to go into battle, and there was like this open, beautiful, like a valley, not a valley, but like a field. And they said, "This is where your father he he walked right here." So we were standing on the sidewalk, and they said, "This is where he walked, and this is where he would have gone out to the battle." So you almost feel like you're standing there. You could just picture. The only thing separating you is time. Hmm. And uh, yeah. And then just seeing these beautiful, rolling, gorgeous hills, like I'm sure you see in France. Um, and then you realize that looked completely different. Yeah. And by, by the way, how, how do you feel uh, as Americans uh, when you see uh, in Europe that, you know, now uh, we're all free from uh, the oppression of the Nazis and knowing that Leo was part of all this? How do you feel about all that? I feel very proud of what the Allied forces did because the Nazis, if they had been successful, from what I've read, their goal was world domination. And I think that much more of the world would have fallen under their steel boots. And I think it was absolutely vital that they were stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's really incredible how much momentum the Germans were able to develop after World War I. And um, from my perspective, I think it's really unfortunate that they were allowed to gain the momentum. They had plenty of... Um, England and France and other countries, Poland, they had enough knowledge to know that Germany was building up their forces again. And um, I'm very proud of what happened. And I think it's really sad that so many people now are forgetting mm -hmm. what was accomplished in World War II. It's um, not really being taught in our own country anymore. Really? Yes. Well, when we first went to Luxembourg, it was in 2006, we met some older folks and then we actually went to several small museums. We met a number of people that remember the soldiers as children, as I'm sure you've probably met uh, quite a few people. Mm -hmm. And we met people that were more appreciative of what happened in what occurred, had better understanding of what had occurred than what we understand. We had several people that were in tears. One gentleman, curates a museum for the B-17. And he said he met over the years, a lot of the, the B-17 people, the pilots and the gunners. And he said, why would these people come over and sacrifice themselves for me? Uh, it was just this, the gratitude we received just, you know, they said, Oh, your father was in this. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, it was like, it was this, it was just such a connective. It was just, it was beautiful. And just these people had these memories and they said, when we would hear the, the drone of the planes, we would all cheer and clap and the less children, because they knew that they were, the enemy was getting trounced <laughs> and, you know, they knew there was hope. And, and so. Did it help it, you it, realize how important it, it is for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, and I think, you know, understanding American history um, President Roosevelt had a very difficult time um, in the beginning getting the American people on board because they looked at this as, well, it's just another conflict with Europe. They're doing their thing again, you know, and they did not want to become involved. And then lo and behold, Pearl Harbor happened and it galvanized the American people. And you have to remember at the beginning of World War II, The American armed forces were 17th in the world as far as their power. Yeah, yeah. They were small potatoes. And I think it's really remarkable how from the beginning of the war to the end of the world war, we went from being small potatoes to being the dominant 
military force in the world. And that's because the American people were willing to sacrifice. You know, people now talk about that era as the greatest generation of Americans. I truly believe they were. They were incredible, incredible, mm. strong, tough, tough, innovative people. Yeah. There, I can't find, there's somewhere in his memoirs, he was talking about, he and his friend were talking about, they wouldn't, they couldn't be, they said, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to do this job, but I wouldn't pay a person a dime to not do it. And they, they had this, and my father was the same, a lot of his friends were the same. They saw whatever needed to be done and they just subscribed to, we need to do this thing. And he said, I always wanted to see Europe. I just didn't think I would do it crawling on my belly across the ground. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but thank you very much for, for uh, you know, uh, that, that very nice conversation. And um, I would just tell you that I appreciate you very much. Yes. I don't know that there are very many people in your generation that have taken this kind of interest mm -hmm. and the work that you have done is profound and we're really proud of you for doing it and for yes. recognizing American efforts in World War II and thank you very much for your work. Yes. Thank you very much for your kind words. <laughs> well, thank you very much and, um, and, and looking forward to uh, talking to you again anytime. Okay. So absolutely. Right. Thank you bye so bye. much. Bye bye. bye. Goodbye. That's it for today. And I hope you enjoyed Leo's story. Make sure to pick up a copy of Till Victory, the Second World War by those who were there on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or anywhere you usually get your books and spread the good word by telling your friends about it and leaving great reviews online. That would be really appreciated. Stay safe out there. Do not hesitate to reach out on Facebook or tillvictory.com and looking forward to a future great conversation. Till next time. Au revoir.